0: I don't know what to say to our audience, except that (laughs) we, we did drop off the radar. No, we didn't communicate with you. Yes. We knew that we weren't showing up to work. Why is this? Well, Chad, do you want to take this one?
1: (laughs) I think we mentioned it last time, uh, that I, uh, we had a baby, uh, So it's been about two months, I think, since the last episode. And so I, I, yeah. I
0: feel like it's been the longest hiatus that we've ever taken since we started the
1: show. Definitely the longest hiatus. Yeah. I I didn't give you as much time to recover from having a baby as you gave me. I was
0: back on it, man.
1: Well, I don't think I understood. I mean, you know, everybody sort of understands that having a baby is a lot of work. But I don't think that I understood the level of mental draining that happens uh, (laughs) from being tired all the time and like. Like I'm I'm just like a zombie uh like mush brain uh
0: but I, I guess I just want to say, you know, obviously we've talked and I've congratulated you. But now I will just take the posture of the entire Zero Sum Empire community and um on their behalf, I will say congratulations. Congratulations to you and Bex and Jane.
1: Thank you. Uh and I will say I'm sorry uh, for uh, not having an episode out for two and a half months.
0: (laughs) Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the roughly 640 mostly anonymous American billionaires. And it's good to be back.
1: It's good to be back. It does feel good to be back. Uh, I'm in a different chair. Uh, so I'm not exactly back. I, I'm not getting those like nostalgic vibes of two and a half months ago when we were last here uh, because I had different to
0: chair, a, a different mindset, a
1: different mentality. Uh, I think I have the same mentality uh, and, <laughs> and probably mindset, just a di- really just a different chair. I think. <laughs> um,
0: All right. Don't sell yourself short, man. Yeah. I see some real development from my perspective, looking at you, some real changes, yeah. some real growth. Yeah. Th- yeah. There has been you know, some
1: real growth. I put on about 20 pounds since the pandemic started. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a lot of growth. That's not what I was talking about, my body. man. Uh, just- I, my, I look ridiculous right now. <laughs> I I tried to cut my own hair again. <laughs> and I probably did the worst job that I, I did it three times so far during the pandemic. This is probably the worst one. I think it looks great. Um thanks. Um let's do the news. All right, let's do the news. Millionaires in the news. All right, well, the big news uh and really like uh, at this very moment, it's the big news is the Amazon union unionization drive. Uh, the M Am- the Amazon facility in Bessemer, Alabama is, uh, going through, uh, unionization bid. So we are current, we are recording in between the time when they have voted and the votes have been counted. It's on that very day. I don't know how long it will take to to count the votes, but, um, Uh, So we don't know what the results were yet, but it's a really big deal. There's, I mean, it's a big deal for that facility. It's a huge Amazon facility with over 6,000 people working there. Um, But it's also sort of a larger symbolic deal in the sense that it's in the South. Uh, It's in a right to work state. Like um, uh, it's very, there's a lot of anti-union sentiment and so, if they win this, then it's like a, a sign that uh, unionization bids elsewhere might be more likely to succeed. Uh, and uh, and so, there's a lot of people, at least a lot of pro labor people. <laughs> I guess there's a lot of people hoping it will fail too. But but there's uh, a lot of people hoping that it will su- succeed. And and you know, from what I uh, understand, um, Bessemer uh, is outside Birmingham and. That was a big industrial town uh, in the early to mid 20th century uh, in steel and coal. And so there's like a cultural legacy of powerful unions in that specific area. So even if the state might largely be very hostile to unions, uh, there may be, you know, a critical mass, at least of people who uh, can put them over the top. So. Uh, so we're keeping our fingers crossed for Bessemer, um, uh, but you know one of the funny things that came out of that a- Amazon is doing all of these. I guess this, this part's not funny. Uh, they're doing a bunch of uh, like hardball anti-union tactics, uh, like they're putting propaganda, like just ceaseless, uh, like propagandizing to employees up to the up to putting posters on bathroom stalls and above urinals uh, that. Uh, uh, try to convince them that unions are not in their interest. Uh, they also, you know, like in a very like Pinkerton-esque kind of way, uh, are paying the local cops to harass organizers, and the cops admitted to it. They admitted to providing uh extra security uh for Amazon. Uh, like that's really shady. Don't work for Amazon, right? You know, you're like yeah supposed to be that should cops. not be happening <laughs> yeah um uh but one of the fun the funny part that i mentioned earlier is that as part of this uh anti-union uh you know strategic push uh they farmed out a bunch of twitter accounts to do like to try and do viral propaganda and um and just did a, a terrible job at it like
0: so there's this. Give me an example. What happened?
1: Well, there's this tradition of companies doing this sort of thing, creating these sock puppet accounts and using stock photos as uh, profile pictures for the people. And every single time they get busted because people reverse image search the the profile pics, and f- this is a stock photo from you know uh, Getty Images. Why don't
0: they just take so, the time to like do a photo shoot?
1: I, mean, I guess they could do that. But then you like you run the risk of people telling, you know, but what they did this time is they used an online AI that generates human faces <laughs> to, to make faces. So it's faces. just a fake. So you couldn't yeah. reverse image search it because it was an original, you know, AI generated face. Um, uh, And if you've seen the Twitter account, this person does not exist. Uh, It's like the same sort of thing. I mean, they got they got busted really, really easily. Gizmodo showed how like definitively how this specific online face generator uh, uh, made these things. Uh, But uh, like the (laughs) the Twitter accounts and like you didn't really need to do that level of sleuthing sleuthing to figure out that they were fake because they would write stuff on Twitter like, uh, quote, Amazon is not anti-union. Unions are valuable tools at companies that don't provide good pay and benefits like Amazon does. We simply don't need them here. And this is a person like posing as an Amazon employee, or, or I don't know who I don't know who who it was, um, but uh, and so like after they got busted doing this uh, sock puppet propaganda, uh, they denied it because it violates Twitter's you know terms of service or whatever. Uh, and but Twitter, you know, after the it was revealed that the faces were fake, uh, Twitter took down the accounts. But uh, th- that same account that I just read from also tweeted, there's nothing wrong with unions. They work for a lot of places. But at Amazon, I'm compensated fairly, given agency and benefits and treated with respect. And a lot of the people here who want <laughs> unions are, let's just say, not team players. LOL. <laughs> oh, oh, Amazon! I mean, what, like, what, what, what? Real human being would say that my employer gives me agency? Like that, it is the most like horseshit. Human resources speak you could imagine, <laughs> and they're like, who are they? Who's their audience? Right? Like, is the idea that Amazon employees in the Bessemer facility? are going to see these tweets and like, I mean, it's a little bit confusing who they, who they were trying to convince in the first place. But uh, anyway, it failed. Those accounts are deleted. Uh, So the Bessemer story is the big story. Uh, There's only one other one today. uh, And this is just like incredibly mind bending to me. Um, One of the things that we've talked about a lot on this show is helicopters and the love that billionaires have for helicopters, uh, like multiple times, helicopters and being an expert helicopter guy and being in helicopter races, like this comes up all the time. Since we've last <laughs> recorded, which as we already talked about, was not really that long ago, a couple of months, two billionaires have died in unrelated helicopter crashes. Um, Like, I, I mean... There's not that many billionaires. Okay, so so neither of these billionaires was American. There's like 650 American billionaires. Uh globally there's a couple thousand, right? Like there's not that many of them. Two of them. So that
0: is that's unlikely, but helicopters are dangerous as we know.
1: Yeah. I think your chances of dying in a helicopter though are I don't know what the chances are. I
0: just, I mean, obviously, you just think of Kobe, Kobe Bryant. But Kobe
1: Bryant. Yeah. You just maybe wonder if maybe these are all related in some sort of foul play. They were. Um, Whoa, deep state. The first billionaire was Olivier Dassault. He was a French guy. Uh, he inherited his fortune from his father. Uh, it was an aerospace thing. He became a center right politician in France for a while. Uh, but mostly, he, it, the helicopter thing was not. Uh, just like a one-off. His most of his life was flying around in like expensive and rare planes. He was like a big pilot guy. Hmm. So yeah, he he died doing what he loved. Uh, the second helicopter death was Czech billionaire Petr Kellner. Um, he was the richest man in the Czech Republic. Um,
0: is this the Antarctica thing?
1: Uh, Alaska. Um, uh, but, Alaska. Uh, so you couldn't have been further away. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, he, he was uh. He was uh hella skiing in uh, Alaska and um, they flew into a mountain, you know, um, seems like helicopters fly into mountains a lot. And I, I'm not an expert or a pilot, but if I was in a helicopter, I would make sure to not do it around mountains because that seems I think dangerous.
0: helicopters, period, are dangerous. That's what I'm developing a sense of.
1: I guess so. I mean, yeah. Why even why bother in the first place? Uh, probably because they're badass and they
0: can go anywhere quickly and you just feel like awesome when you're traveling by helicopter because it just makes life simple until you crash into a mountain in which case your life is over
1: well that's a good point but I don't think I would be comfortable or feel awesome in a helicopter I think I would feel scared and helpless dude you don't have the billionaire <laughs> mindset <laughs> I don't have I don't have billionaire mindset that's true <laughs> My billionaires today are four brothers. Uh, I feel like Joe usually gets the families, uh, but today well, I got have got a one surprise
0: coming during my section.
1: Oh, I do. Interesting. Okay, all right. I'm I'm excited. There, I don't have. I actually don't have that much to say about the four brothers who make up the Bass family uh, and control the Bass family fortune today. Like, I will say that they're basically all. Uh, socially useless parasites in the way that we have become familiar with uh, <laughs> uh billionaires who inherit massive fortunes being on the show um they every single one of them makes a big deal about what amazing philanthropists they are, but all of the all everything that they give away goes to Yale and Stanford uh where they have a bunch of buildings named after themselves but to be fair,
0: Yale and Stanford need a lot of money to be Yale and Stanford
1: yeah they've they've fallen on hard times uh it's probably
0: well it's not that they've fallen on hard times it's just that they require that much money
1: (laughs) that's the yeah um so yeah i like Uh, that's that's what they do i'll I'll get into a little bit more detail about it later but that, that that's mainly they give money to large and rich schools uh but uh Otherwise, they just sort of invest in oil and gas, and it's not even clear how much they have a uh, say in that. They just sort of like do business and make a lot of money. Uh, there are four of them, as I said, uh, Sid, Robert, Edward, and Lee. Uh, they come from a long line of Texas oil men. I'm going to talk about mostly the lineage today, uh, but I do just briefly want to draw your attention to the names of the four brothers, uh, which is Sid, the eldest. Uh, he he was named after his uncle Sid Richardson, who I'm going to talk a lot about. Uh and that that's who the the fortune was originally inherited from. Uncle Sid? Uncle Sid um was the person who generated the fortune in the first place.
0: That so- that sounds right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and the other three brothers are uh, Robert, Edward, and Lee. Uh you know, if you Wikipedia Robert E. Lee lately, uh, you'll rem- remember that his middle name was Edward. I did find I will say that that I that I did find out that Lee is a family name uh for these people. But I but I will also say that having <laughs>
0: Because just Robert E. Lee was their great granddad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, their great grandfather was uh, as one article put it, an unreconstructed Confederate. A guy who was uh a big Confederate army guy and never gave up the cause, I guess, as long as he lived. So uh, you know, I, but I did. I did want to say, like, as somebody who has just named a baby, everyone who names a baby thinks about the name. These parents did not miss that their children were named Robert Edward Lee, right? Like, the, they, that's not something that escaped their attention, right? Like, Lee may have been a family name, but they knew what they were doing, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, how could you not? So, uh, like I said, the, the Bass brothers inherited their fortune from their family. Specifically, Sid Williams Richardson. Uh, And Joe, I'm going to assume that you haven't heard of Sid Richardson. Most people have. That is an
0: accurate assumption.
1: Yeah. Um, But he was an extremely big deal in his day. Uh, And in fact, he was one of the subjects of a book called The Big Rich by Brian Burrow, uh, who was a co-author of Barbarians at the Gate. Uh, which is about hostile takeovers and, you know, American finance um, is a big, very important book uh, that all listeners should read. Uh, the, the Big Rich, is, though, is about uh, four families who are apparently referred to in Texas as the Big Four, and they basically ran the oil business in Texas. So the Bass family was one of those families, and Bass, which is the name of the brothers now, was a name that was adopted through marriage. But but Richardson was the one who developed the fortune in the first place. Uncle Sid. Uncle Sid. And one of the other big four families were the Murchisons. And the Murchisons and the Richardsons were, uh, or Sid Richardson and Clint Murchison anyway, they were partners their entire lives from age 11 and 16. They st- partnered up to start selling cattle and they were partners. there. So two of the big four Families were, uh, were partners in business. So I thought I would read uh, the introduction of Burroughs' chapter on Richardson, because I think it gives us a pretty good idea of, of what he was, uh, who he was. Uh, for, he writes, For a man who would one day be proclaimed America's richest citizen, who at his death controlled more petroleum reserves than three major oil companies, Sid Williams Richardson left few footprints on history. He attracted no biographer. In life, he earned exactly one magazine profile of note, and while he gave newspaper interviews over the years, they consisted largely of aphorisms and apocryphal stories. Oil industry histories ignore him. A mammoth 1,647-page history of American oil exploration uh, mentions Richardson all of three times. A lifelong bachelor who lived before the age of prying reporters... Uh, Richardson disdained letter writing, preferring the telephone or making assistant authors uh, assistants author important communications. One protege, the evangelist Billy Graham, once said, Sid Richardson told me years ago, don't put anything in writing. If you use the telephone, they can never use it against you. His family went out of it out of its way to obscure the facts of Richardson's career. A portrait of Richardson hangs in the Permian Basin Hall of Fame and Museum in Midland, Texas. I didn't know that existed, but I do want to go to the Permian Basin Hall of Fame, Uh, but Richardson's is the only biographical file at the facility that is restricted, reviewable only with the family's approval.
0: So So let me just, let me just say like this guy came up with the original unwritten billionaire PR playbook,
1: you know, (laughs) that's why I wanted to read that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, it's horrible, but it's interesting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the staying out of the public eye almost completely. So him and his partner Murchison were in the the 1940s and early 50s, two of the five richest people in the United States. Nobody's ever heard of either of them. Uh, Not only that, but wait till we get into it. So. Uh, just two de- details from that like specific passage that i read to remember first the implication that richardson was gay uh that came up again and again in everything that i read about him and his his second and i don't i don't know if it's true i don't know if anybody does but the you know sort of restricted personal materials the the uh, well the details we'll we'll get into later but um it seems plausible uh, and second his inclination towards secrecy so just remember those things as we go along. He was a bad student. Uh, he drank way too much, very famous for getting in fist fights, uh could not hold a job, just not not a guy who had success uh, written all over him, uh but what he did do well was social network. Uh, as Burroughs writes, Richardson's career would be marked by an ability to befriend those who could help him the most, uh which uh, as I'll get into, is a massive understatement. Um, so his, his first transaction based friendship was Clint Murchison, uh, when Murchison was 11 years old, Richardson befriended him and lo and behold, Richardson was 16. Murchison was 11. Murchison's father lent the 16 year old (laughs) Sid Richardson, uh, several thousand dollars, which in the 19, this must've been the late 1920s, uh, it's a lot of money, an incredible amount of money, right? To a to a rando, sixteen year old. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, he did that for for several years. Uh, cattle trading, which like is sort of an up and a down thing for him. Uh, but then he got into the oil business and things took off. Uh, one thing to to know about these two guys is that they were very into secluded and private getaways. Uh, er- early on, yeah, well, it, it, you'll see why. Uh, Early on, after they got rich, (laughs) um, they both bought private islands almost immediately off the coast of Texas. And the islands were right next to, they were like island neighbors. um, They're right next to each other. And they spent a lot of time entertaining wealthy and powerful people there. Very Jeffrey Epstein vibes kind of way. Somehow Richardson befriended Franklin Delano Roosevelt's son elliot who had moved to fort worth to seek his fortune so like elliot was this kind of black sheep of of the you know sort of rich you know upper crust family of the the roosevelts and uh i I wanted to read this snippet about how elliot roosevelt spent his later years because it's like it's so it's so classic grifter mentality like these details uh so uh, a quote yeah lay it on us in the early 1970s, Elliot was living in Portugal with his fifth and final wife and writing a tell-all book about the private lives of his famous private lives of his famous parents. His siblings, as well as the many admirers of Franklin and Eleanor, were infuriated by his anything-for-a-book philosophy and flippant dismissal of their criticism. So Richardson and Elliot Roosevelt became close. And then Richardson and env- said, hey, Elliot, why don't you invite your dad down for a fishing trip? Wouldn't that be nice? We can go to my private island. And this is while FDR was president. Yeah,
0: just your <laughs> random dad. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's like, it would be cool. I would like to meet him. He seems interesting. And maybe <laughs> does he like fishing? Right. And so they go to his private uh, island yeah. while... FDR is there. He has a private meeting with Richardson and Murchison, uh, no witnesses. Um, but one of the things to know about Richardson and Murchison is they made their fortunes by, by flouting the law by just basically being criminals. Um, so this is a little bit in the weeds of, uh, uh, you know, early 20th century, um, oil law, but, Oil states like Texas had laws called proration laws that set limits on how much wildcatters could take out of a well. And the reasons for this were like if you took too much out, it would kill the pressure. And so other people wouldn't be able to get oil out of their wells. And so it would decrease overall production. But also it was a price stabilization thing. Um and so the state governments would regulate how much you could actually withdraw from from a well. Everything that you withdrew over that set amount was called hot oil, <laughs> and um and people would illegally run hot oil, uh, and that is how Murchison and Richardson made their their fortunes by running hot oil. But
0: so if they found out about the hot oil, you would be fined or you could be well. Like, that's the thing prosecuted. Like,
1: so the people who were responsible for the, for enforcing this was the Texas Railroad Commission, and they had no real power. They didn't have this, you know. And again, in a way that's familiar to us today, didn't have the resources to police this. Um, no and teeth.
0: So, so people no were te- just running hot oil all the time.
1: People were running hot oil all the time. It was very lucrative. Richardson and Murchison are making millions. The Texas government lobbied FDR to pass an act which he did in 1933 to enforce legal action against the transport of hot oil and FDR sent hundreds of federal agents to East Texas to clamp down and like it, this law was like for Murchison and Richardson specifically right the fishing trip is in 1937 this is after after the clampdown after the clampdown after they'd been charged FDR leaves after the fishing trip, Murchison, uh, who the charges were directed at Murchison changes the plea from not guilty to no contest and pays a $15,000 fine. So like basically got off with nothing. Uh, And that began a long and fruitful, that was like the moment where their business plan for how to get rich, like how to get insanely rich, right? crystallized in their minds and they just ran that scam get close to people interpersonally like in in whatever way you can and invite them to your secluded resort and make deals right and what do you think they gave fdr to make him like turn in that way that's a great that's a great question and i don't know but actually i do know sort of what roosevelt got in return it's not verified, but, um, uh, you know, that this was a kind of specific quid pro quo. Uh, but after Roosevelt went back to Washington after 1937, both Murchison and Richardson became extremely involved in making political donations, right? Like they made lots and lots and lots of political donations to the extent that they were the primary funders of the democratic. Well, not always the Democratic Party. They were big Eisenhower backers, and some people credit uh, them with getting Eisenhower elected. But the main guy for them was LBJ, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. They Ugh. they funded his entire political career. Uh, like they they from the like moment he was elected to. Congress. So
0: these are like hugely influential figures in American history.
1: Yes, but just
0: are. backstage. So.
1: In one source I read and and I do, you know, obviously uh, money in politics has been uh, uh, an issue in the United States uh, since its inception. But uh, from, from one article I read, it was at least the Democratic Party did not really see individual businessmen as potential game changers for uh, for politics. And I think that the growing sort of commercial atmosphere of, uh, of political campaigning uh, that was taking place around the time of FDR, and especially, obviously, afterward with, you know, television and things like that, like, maybe they were thinking about funding political campaigns in a slightly different way. And, you know, certain things just kind of came together, right? Like, uh, in a much more mediated environment, it became necessary to do a lot more fundraising, uh and uh or different kinds of fundraising and Murchison and Richardson just happened to be there with a lot of money and uh and so they started funding all of these candidates to the extent that after Pearl Harbor, um Roosevelt obviously like in going into a war effort wanted to know how much oil was this is I guess before the strategic oil reserves. Uh, wanted to know how much oil was on hand instead of contacting the oil companies. He contacted the guys who owned the land that the oil companies drilled on Murchison and Richardson and asked them, you know, basically immediately after Pearl Harbor, he was meeting with Murchison and Richardson to figure out how much oil the United States had and and how much would be available for the war effort. Um, Wow.
0: That is, that's, that's like pure power in the ground.
1: Yeah. I mean, just the, yeah, exactly. The most, like the most fundamental sort of infrastructural power you could, like we, they controlled where the energy comes from. Right. (laughs) And they like, you know, like they started entertaining other people on their Island. Like it's very Trump and Mar-a-Lago. I don't think Mar-a-Lago ever material, like Mar-a-Lago is sort of a place where like retirees go to, you know pretend like they're still alive or something. But I think that in Trump's mind, it was like this power center, right? Where where rich people would come to do deals. Um, but Murchison and Richardson actually had that um, uh, in their Texas islands. And later they recreate the, the, that was like, that was phase one, right? Like phase two or, or, or 2.0 was uh, a, a, a resort that they started in La Jolla, California called the Del Charo and it was a combination like beach bungalow vacation spot and horse racing track and that that is where their involvement in the world of political influence like gets kind of darker and and definitely weirder so <laughs> the first political bigwig that they had and this was like in the 1950s The first political bigwig in 1952 that they had there was J. Edgar Hoover.
0: Wow. Okay, so this is great. This is great.
1: (laughs) Enter J. Edgar Hoover. (laughs) Enter J. Edgar Hoover. uh, And his longtime aide, Clyde Tolson, stayed there every summer until he died. uh, Between 1952 and 1972, every summer. Stayed at the La Jolla Resort. Not a
0: casual relationship to the resort. <laughs> no, not a
1: casual relationship, and especially uh, when you understand that every time Hoover stayed there, he ranked up, uh, 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 racked up a bill of of like tens of thousands of dollars, and it was free every single time. Uh, you know, lodging, food, gambling, or whatever. Uh, Richardson and Murchison covered the bill. He was it for everything for twenty years. Oh my. Um, so in the (laughs) 1980s and it gets worse like his deals with uh or with uh hoover in the 1980s after everyone was dead uh there was an investigation that revealed hoover had oil dealings with murchison and richardson he so he had this deal where he would invest money with their drilling companies if the company hit a dry well Hoover got his money back. If the well-made money, Hoover made the money that the investor would make. Right. So like, that's insanely it was just sketchy. It was there. Oh. There's, there's no way. Like, so it's like a, it's a, it's no a 100%
0: reason. chance. I'm going to make money.
1: A 100% chance of a, yeah, of, of at least getting your money back. And, You know, and he had several of these deals. So obviously, some of them were meant to hit. So,
0: for like a risk averse man like J. Edgar Hoover, yeah, that's the the right risk calculation. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So,
1: after Hoover made Del Charo his vacation spot, Joe McCarthy started showing up. Uh, They became very good friends with Joe McCarthy. um, And he may have even brought his right hand man, who you might know from the Trump era, Roy Cohn. As Burroughs writes, quote, at night, sipping drinks around the pool, the oil men listened in rapt silence as McCarthy railed against communist influences in the government. Reportedly, McCarthy would occasionally jump into the pool naked. Um, And one of the things that that interests me about this is that like Hoover and Roy Cohn were gay men. Um, There are like, you know, fairly substantiated rumors that McCarthy. And Richardson were also gay. Uh, and it just like, I'm just like, it blows my mind to imagine this scene where these guys uh, who are sitting around a pool, getting wasted, screaming about communists and how good American values are, and then just like boning until the sun comes up. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, it's so incredible. Like And these people are like the
0: people that controlled so much of what happened in the middle part of the 20th century. Yeah,
1: yeah. And they, yeah. And they like, I mean, it's just like, it's so at odds with itself. It's just like, it's so strange to think about. So anyway, they, they, they used their friendship with Hoover to their advantage in many ways. They even, I don't have like all of the details here. I mean, I don't want to get into every side story. But at one point, they were shaking down the mafia by threatening to sick Hoover on them if they didn't give them like a sweetheart deal on land, like so they were extorting. So they're like the above mafia. the mafia. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. they're like, listen, we're buddies with J Edgar Hoover. Do you want the FBI investigating you? Like, and they would just do that, right? And um, here's a, this is a good grift. Um, one of the schemes that they worked up. And Hoover was involved in this was to turn the La Jolla Resort into a nonprofit. And they said that they would give 90% of the earnings to the boys' clubs of California. But they were trying to figure out a way to make their horse racing track, a gambling establishment, into a nonprofit organization so it was tax exempt, which they did. And <laughs> they named their nonprofit uh Boys Incorporated. <laughs> which- <laughs> It's amazing and and really funny. But like, so it was, it was meant as a scam, just like a straightforward tax scam. But also they had like a a second objective, which was to rehabilitate. Like there was a stereotype about like brash classless Texas oil men sort of taking over, circulating the culture. And so they wanted to show that they were good citizens. And so they said that they were doing this and the New York times printed it on page one, uh, this reporting about their philanthropy. Uh, but, uh, unfortunately, uh, they never gave any money to the boys clubs. Uh, and in fact only made plans to buy five more racetracks and do the same thing. Uh, and then when those deals were going through, it triggered the IRS and they clamped down on them and they, somehow forbid them from buying the other racetracks and also they had to end up giving actually a million dollars to the boys clubs uh so they got and got bid on that one
0: but i mean that that was basically nothing because they were they were billionaires back then probably or close yeah to it.
1: yeah i mean it was nothing um but oh yeah so hoover the plan was and hoover was down with this um that uh, Hoover was going to be the director of Boys Incorporated after he retired from the FBI. Um, And uh, one imagines that the salary would be very large.
0: It's just so crazy to imagine that that's how power, that's what power looks like. You know, it's probably not that much different today. It's just like-
1: Very classic Boys Club. Like to the, like a Boys Club that was literally called boys incorporated <laughs> right like, <laughs> <you> know, like
0: <laughs> yeah that's amazing <laughs> yeah that's amazing
1: um so like everything that they did to amass their fortune was illegal in some way um <clears throat> like they they sucked the other you know one of the things that i was wondering about right like is to what degree were these bungalows i mean they were friends with Jagger hoover right like to what degree were these bungalows uh compromise generation devices right like how much were they blackmailing people like you know what you could one can only imagine the, the imagination runs wild but um so that was uh that was him sid richardson bass um a hard drinking fist fighting texas oil man who cheated his way to the top uh that and was then, a
0: fascinating story it
1: is fascinating well, that, uh, that's the end and so everyone else in his whole damn family is the world's most boring person. Everyone else went to Yale for undergrad, went to Stanford Business School, once in a while, Wharton, and then just became a person who did nothing except boat and probably helicopters, Uh, mostly boats and horses, though, and, and just sort of shit around So how do plant. we how
0: do we how do we rate well, these people I,
1: Well, I'm not ready to, I'm not ready to go to the rating yet. I'm not ready to go to the rating yet because I do want to talk a little bit about the uh about the rest of the field. I haven't mentioned the brothers yet. Um so obviously, you know, Sid Richardson uh as a person who never married, uh he didn't have any children, right? So his nephew Uh, Perry Richardson Bass is the one who got the fortune and he's the one who had the four sons that inherited the fortune from him. Uh, the eldest of the four sons is Sid Bass. Uh, he went to Yale and Stanford. He invests in oil and gas. Uh, the only thing of note about him is he was the largest, largest shareholder of Disney in the eighties and nineties, but had to sell in 2001. Uh, and, uh, I'm sure he wishes he still had that. There is one brief story uh, that is really weird involving him. And that's that uh, his ex-wife was uh, or, or no, I'm sorry. That's not him. That's a different brother. Uh, Sid was, he was <laughs> briefly in the rich person tabloids because he like very scandalously divorced his wife of many years to marry an Iranian socialite. Um and uh oh no, no, the, the thing I was thinking of, it, it was him. Sorry, I'm revisiting my notes here. His his first wife was taken hostage by her ex-butler and injected with a substance that he said was a deadly virus, and said if she didn't pay him eight point five million or if he she paid him eight point five million dollars, he would give her the antidote to the virus. Uh, so that didn't, I don't, It. it the, there are no details about what went down in between the Butler saying, give me $8.5 million and, and him being arrested, but somehow it didn't work and he got, caught. Yeah, I was
0: assuming it didn't <laughs> work out for the Butler. <laughs> no,
1: the next brother, Robert is maybe more boring. He also went to Yale and Stanford. Uh, he's a mergers and acquisitions guy who like buys and sells company. Uh, i don't understand
0: why we're talking about any of these people but keep. yeah well we gotta get we gotta
1: we gotta talk about the brothers because that's who i was assigned so i'm just giving you a brief rundown um he's he has a lot of mutual friends with trump like tom barack uh uh his he also does philanthropy uh which is only giving to yale and stanford Uh, the youngest (laughs) brother is lee bass Uh, i also went to yale uh however in a in a huge break from tradition uh he went to wharton instead of stanford for business school uh he briefly served as the uh, commissioner of the texas park uh, for uh, uh of the texas parks and wildlife department uh oh oh the weird thing about him in 1988 he donated 20 million dollars to yale to start a program in western civilization uh yale ended up returning the donation because the faculty protested having a program that like studied western civilization. Yeah, like, what like, year was this? 9 uh, 1988. So like he was on the western chauvinist train way early. Um yeah. Well,
0: or way late. I mean, it's I, I look at Well, yeah, 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 in the
1: interim <laughs> period where maybe people weren't talking about as much. Um but like anyway, he sucks. They all suck. There's one more brother and I saved him for last because he sucks the least uh even though he still kind of sucks. He was actually <laughs> sort of in the news recently. If you saw the Biosphere 2 documentary that came out last year, then you might remember that Ed Bass was the billionaire who funded the entire thing. Um, I have not seen it. So uh, I always thought like I think most people do, that Biosphere 2 was like a government project that maybe was related to NASA in some way. No, it was billionaire Ed Bass and a theater troupe that lived in a new age commune called Synergia Ranch Eco Village. And they started something called the Institute of Ecotechnics that Ed Bass directed. Um, and that sounds insane. Was- it, what it is insane. It's a good documentary. Um, and they actually ended up, I think kind of being pretty cool people uh, who, you know, they didn't have a lot of like bona fides. They didn't have a lot of qualifications aside from like just being really enthusiastic, <laughs> um, but they did seem like their hearts were in the right place. Maybe. Uh, I don't remember this documentary that well. Anyway, Ed Bass really didn't. He got frustrated by them. Um, and, and that's how we get the weird factoid from Steve Bannon's biography that at one point he ran Biosphere 2. Uh, that's because Ed Bass brought him in to manage the place. Uh, Ed because,
0: Bass brought in Steve Bannon? Yeah,
1: because the theater troupe, you know, like, costs went <laughs> out of control. Um, and Bannon Bannon was brought in to, like, get, it, get costs down. Uh, he was unfortunately unable to save Biosphere 2, but... But while he was there, he was able to get uh, accused of sexual harassment by several women. Anyway, I don't really have a closer here uh, other than we got to
0: rate the people. We got to. Yeah, we
1: got to rate them. Um, I mean, just like they're, they're nothing people. They they do zero philanthropy other than giving to large universities. They do. They just invest in oil and gas bullshit. They didn't do anything to earn the fortune in the first place. They're parasites. They're they're it Seems
0: like five. Like I'm just trying to take your cue on these on these ratings. It's like a three should be bad. A five is pretty bad. Seven is egregious. Body,
1: seven is where the body count starts. Like the like the direct body count starts being a countable.
0: Direct, direct yeah. body count is eight, nine, ten yeah yeah seven yeah. is seven <laughs> seven is pre-body count but contributing to a structural <laughs> situation that leads to body count
1: yeah 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 and i mean and these guys are you know like they're they're just mini coke brothers they're still doing oil and gas stuff you know like i mean they're, yeah. they're pretty bad but like you know in terms of like their i want to say six
0: therefore i want to say the six big. because of Old money and Sid is bad.
1: The origin story is very dark, very bad. I, I want to say six. Yeah. Six is good. I, I'm comfortable with six. All right, Joe. So that was the Bass family. What billionaire have you hooked this week?
0: Oh, my God. What? I, I really wish you hadn't have done that. That was bad. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive us uh, listeners. Okay. So you were saying at the beginning of your last segment, how I usually get families and you got a family this time. And I, and then I was like, yeah, I've got something for you when my segment comes around. Well, I, I didn't realize this when we pulled my billionaire off the wheel but it turned out to be a family oh no (laughs) you can't catch a break i can't catch a break (laughs) i'm doing another family yet again and i'm also doing another segment on the nfl which i know we did a segment on the nfl a few episodes ago but i'm doing another episode for a couple of reasons
1: nfl ownership we've done stadium finance stuff. What else? Yeah. It's, it's come up a number of times. You can't throw a rock without hitting a billionaire who owns a football. It's
0: kind of my point that I'll get to in a second. So like, one thing is that I went back and I listened to my previous segment for the NFL episode. I, I don't often listen to old episodes, but I did for today and given some distance I don't know, man. I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about the segment. I mean, do you remember that? Se-
1: <laughs> do you remember that segment? Well, I, I actually don't know which one you're talking about because we had. I it's mean, about, I know that a- you've had football guides a couple of times. Uh, which it's about the history of of football. I
0: talked a lot about Walter Camp. Do you remember, remember like I, the history of
1: the game? I do remember you talking about that. I don't remember the name Walter Camp though.
0: Yeah, it doesn't matter. Like it, 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 honestly, like. During the episode, it didn't really seem like you were very interested in what I was saying. (laughs) So, I mean, I tend to tune
1: out when guys talk about sports.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. I mean, like, there was maybe some interesting things. Maybe it was not one of the better episodes. But, like, the other thing that I wasn't really satisfied with was my handling of racism. So, like, I touched on it.
1: Oh no, are you going to do an apology? It, are you reading from your notes app and doing a public apology for something?
0: No, it's not a public apology. I mean, I did talk about the fact that NFL is the NFL is a is like a has a long history and problematic history of racism, but I didn't focus on it. And I really think the issue deserves focus. So, I'm going to focus on structural racism in the NFL in my segment today. And, like, also, kind of like what you were saying a, a second ago, like, it's a, occurred to me that our show is about billionaires and infrastructure in the United States. And, like, given this overarching theme, it would be, I think, like, pretty reasonable if most episodes were mostly about structural racism and the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> like like yeah. there's a there's I'm usually a, a fair amount of overlap in, the, yeah. in those two categories. So I don't feel like, I don't know, like I'm wasting our time delving a little deeper.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, <clears throat> yeah. uh as I don't know, Deleuze, somebody said, uh difference, uh true difference only comes through repetition, right? And so <laughs> um, you know, it's going over a thing uh again and again where you you truly realize the new. Uh so uh novel and exciting things are bound to to come out of coming back again and again to the NFL. Uh
0: I hope so. So I I think there's some interesting things to talk about today. The name we pulled off the wheel is Janice McNair, who is 84 years old and the current owner of the Houston Texans.
1: I do know that the Houston Texans is a newish team. Who were they before?
0: The Oilers. The Oilers many years ago, but then that, that ended. I think the Oilers became the Titans, if I'm remembering. But the the Texans became a team in the in the late 90s. We'll we'll talk more about that. Okay. But uh, so Janice McNair is the richest female team owner in professional sports, apparently. And she inherited her eighty percent stake in the team when her husband Bob died back in twenty eighteen. So I'll talk a little bit more about Bob here in a minute. Uh, Janice and Bob met in college in South Carolina. They have four kids. Only one of them, as far as I can tell, Cal is a is a public figure, and I will be talking about him more too later on in the segment. So I don't know. I don't have much of a sense of Janice because. She rarely gives interviews. Most of the information you'll find out about her is obviously part of a PR spin machine. Mm-hmm. But my my limited sense of Janice is that she is a stereotypical old, rich, white woman of the Southern Christian conservative variety.
1: And so she's she's not one of these owners who's like really present in the day to day operations of. The football team in the way that like
0: her son, her son Cal is, and again, I'll talk oh, okay. more about him that makes sense. Nothing you'll you'll find on the internet about Janice will raise any eyebrows at all or prove surprising in any way. It, most of what is out there relates back to either the Texans f- philanthropy or her husband Bob. She got some good press last summer when she donated a million dollars to rent relief in Houston, and again a few weeks ago when she donated. $500,000 for the winter storm relief for the storm crisis in Texas. You know, I mean, like, that's that's uh, nice, but it's it's also worth pointing out that this $1.5 million of do-gooder money over the past year is less than what the McNairs contributed to Donald Trump alone between oh. 2015 and 2019 oh, wow. uh, as a... As, <laughs> As of 2019, they, they contributed $1.6 million to Trump's inaugural committee, his Trump victory oh. and Trump campaign.
1: This is uh, a connection ba- between our billionaires, by the way, because the guy who ran that was Tom Barack, who is the good friends with one of the Bass brothers. Um,
0: well, and they're both Texas. This is Texas billionaire family. Wow. I mean, they're not originally from Texas, but they've relocated to Houston. So they're you know, big, big Texas money people. So, um, like, back in 2016, the McNairs led all NFL owners in political donations. They have been reliable big-time donors to the Republican Party, supporting folks like Ted Cruz, Mitch McConnell, Rick Perry, Rick and Perry. Many, many, many others. <laughs> Bob McNair was apparently Mitch McConnell's leading donor from 2009 to 2015. Contributing what? one point one point five million dollars to McConnell during during this time, so a tax one point, yeah. I mean, like one point six to Trump, one point five to McConnell. A long list of other donations to Republican Party. So you know, it's like million dollars in rent relief. It's okay, but yeah. uh, there's a Be larger mild. context. <laughs> so, so the McNairs have been especially generous donors to to Republicans. But we're talking about the NFL today, and I I, I guess it probably will not surprise you to hear that political inclinations of the McNairs are representative of NFL ownership across the league more generally. So like the NFL owners have their own pack. It's called the gridiron pack that they use to exert influence in, in Washington. And the vast majority of gridiron pack donations go directly to Republican donors.
1: That sucks.
0: Meanwhile, the players have their own pack, the NFL Players Association one team pack, which leans Democratic. Uh, it, it's true that a little over a third of their do- net donations also go to Republicans, but They give more to Democrats than they do to Republicans.
1: It's so it is so crazy how the most visible front of class war in our society is professional sports. Yeah, well, that's
0: what we're going to talk about today. That's I mean, that's what I'm focusing. Class, class, and race war.
1: Are you doing? I guess you're doing a good job at forecasting what you're going to talk about because you just made me you made me think of that.
0: No, but I mean, I think it's good to have it all out on the table. I mean, I think like what I was gonna say is, you know, it's not necessarily a hundred percent cut and cut and dry, like who's giving money to what? between the the owners and the players. but like, in general, if you look at the big picture, there's a clear political divide between players and ownership, and the divide has been there for a long time, and it's been thrown into like super sharp relief over the past few years, especially in the aftermath of the Colin Kaepernick situation. So, you know, there is one thing that is incredibly cut and dry, and it's this. You probably know this already or some version of it already, but I want to get it out on the table. About 70% of NFL players are black. Do you want to know the percentage of black NFL owners? Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> zero of the 32 majority owners in the nfl only two are people of color kim pagula and shaheed khan neither is black so no black majority owners in the nfl nfl owners or nfl players are 70 percent black as of 2020 okay more on this later let's talk about bob mcnair Bob McNair was a self-made billionaire who had several failed businesses before striking it rich in the energy business. Somehow, in the early '80s, he started CoGen Technologies, a cogeneration power company. Cogeneration is apparently an energy-efficient process that generates electricity and heat at the same time. Do you know about this?
1: No, but that makes
0: sense. I do Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I know nothing about it. We're not going to talk about it. Maybe another episode. Who knows? Bob wound up selling the company to Enron in 1999, a couple of years before Enron exploded. And that same year, he was also awarded the NFL franchise expansion team for Houston. Houston had had the Oilers years before. They didn't have a team anymore. He gets approved for this team. And the team is now the Texans.
1: Question. Is there any other state that just named their NFL team after their state?
0: I don't know. I can't think of one. So Texas fans are likely to know about Bob McNair and the McNair family. If you live in Houston, you probably know about them because they're a well-known family down there. And if you're big into the NFL... You might know about them because you geek out on NFL things and you know about all other NFL owners, and so you know about them. If you're anybody else, the one reason you may be likely to have heard of Bob McNair was because of a comment he made in a closed door owners only meeting back in 2017, where the owners had convened to discuss the kneelings and the protests and the Kaepernick situation. So somehow it got leaked during this meeting in the context of sort of de- devising strategy of how to handle it or what to do about it or how to rein it in or whatever. He made the comment that, quote, we can't have the inmates running the prison. <laughs> so okay, yeah. this, is, this is obviously a deeply offensive statement. It's very, very racist, a very racist thing to say. And players across the league were angered and shaken by the comments. Uh, the Sunday following the revelation of these remarks, more than thirty Houston Texton players knelt before the game to protest what the owner of the team had said. It was all over ESPN. It was all over SportsCenter. For for like a hot minute, it was like uh, everybody was talking about Bob Bob McNair.
1: When 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 exactly? Did you say twenty seventeen? Twenty seventeen,
0: yeah, like the fall of twenty seventeen. So McNair apologized, sort of, but he deflected in that he said that the comment wasn't about NFL players. It wasn't about NFL players, according to McNair. It was about league executives. <laughs> you know, so, like I watched some of the old sports news clips where analysts were unpacking this at the time, and most people on the platforms like agreed that this claim was just completely bogus nonsense. Of course it was obvious he was talking about the players and uh, it was, it was, it was all very bad made worse by the fact that he went public later saying that he wished he hadn't ever apologized because he really, really, really was talking about the league executives and he had nothing to apologize for. So that was like the official Uh, Bob McNair.
1: It's a classic move—the revisionist history thing of apologizing, but then your next move is to claim that the actual mistake was the apology. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) the the hallmark of a person who has learned, who has who has listened and learned. So
0: later that year, Bob died at the ripe old age of eighty-one. At which point. Janice inherits the Texans, and their son, Cal, becomes the chairman and CEO of the team. So in, in my view, here's where things get interesting. Cal is, you know, a, a silver platter type dude. <laughs> you know, like, it seems pretty <laughs> clear that his dad basically handed him his career. Isn't
1: it silver spoon?
0: I think it's also silver silver platter. Hmm. All right. Uh, It's it's not like when the McNair family needed a new CEO for the Texans. They did like a rigorous nationwide job search and interviewed the best and brightest minds of the industry. (laughs) (laughs) How do you think they got
1: that by human resources?
0: (laughs) They determined that Cal McNair was the most qualified applicant for the position. (laughs) You know. Damn. Very obviously, it was just that his parents happen to own the football team, and he likes football, and he's the baby boy, and so he gets to run the team. <laughs> so uh, for reasons I'll go into more detail on here in a second, Cal is getting brutalized online right now. But by way of introduction, I'm just going to take you back to a puff piece written about Cal. Uh, on the Houston Chronicle website, cron.com, back in 2012. The article is titled, quote, McNair in no hurry to take over for dad. (laughs) I kind of like that title. I'm just going (laughs) to quote you the opening sentences here. He doesn't often speak in public settings. Most of the time, Cal McNair will stand quietly beside his father. Or sit quietly by him, perhaps on the golf cart labeled Mr. McNair that serves their quick transportation around Reliance Stadium and to the Texans' practice facility. But inside his office, that changes as he sits just a few feet away from the leopard he killed in Botswana years ago, back when he still had time to hunt. (laughs) So the article goes on to describe his thick mustache and childlike grin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just kind of thought that intro paragraph was funny, but whatever. Like another story that's kind of funny is one that the former Texans quarterback Sage Rosenfels shared publicly about a year ago, that he heard secondhand from another quarterback for the Texans, Dave, David Carr. So uh he's relating the story he heard. Rosenfels had never heard or, or met Cal McNair. So uh, he's talking to David Carr, and he's asking, like, "What's what's this guy like? What's the owner like?" And David Carr describes one time going to Cal McNair's office for a meeting and walking into like a big empty room with no legit furniture, basically just a big room with a giant TV on the wall, and Cal McNair is sitting on the floor. Staring up at the TV, playing video games. <laughs> 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 like evidently, that's Cal.
1: Guys really do be living like this, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's his deal. But like, like that's everything up until now is uninteresting. I'm now onto the good stuff, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> like, like I mentioned a moment ago, like Cal Mac- McNair is getting brutalized online. Why is Cal McNair getting dragged so hard right now? Well, the general level answer is that the Texans suck. Their their record was 4 and 12 this past year. That's not a good record. They're not doing well at all. But so like then the question is, why do they suck so bad? Why do the Texans suck so bad? Okay, on one level, you know, it's a complex problem. A lot of moving parts. I'm sure it deserves a complex answer. But on another level, another probably equally true level, (laughs) there's just one answer. (laughs) One real answer. And the reason the Houston Texans suck so bad is because Cal McNair hired and refused to fire a guy named Jack Easterby. So, Chad, do you know who Jack Easterby is? No. I didn't either. But I do now, and I'm very, very glad that I know who he is. (laughs) Uh, as, As we record this episode today, Jack Easterby is the executive vice president of football operations for the Houston Texans. Before he was an operations executive for the Texans, he had a very different job. Also in the n f l but a but a but a, but a very different job care to hazard a guess what his previous job was?
1: I'm thinking of like goodwill hunting where he's the janitor um and then somebody walks in one day and sees him drawing like but instead of solving like a complicated math equation, he's drawing like those football x and o diagrams <laughs> on a chalkboard, <truck> <laughs> and he's like a football genius.
0: It's, like, basically right minus the genius part. (laughs) So, like, previously, Jack Easterby was a team chaplain and a character
1: coach. Wait, he's a chaplain and his name is... Easter B. <laughs> yeah, I know. Easter Bunny Go figure. Interesting. Yeah. Is he So he he was <laughs> he the Easter
0: Bunny. He, he held this role first for the Kansas City Chiefs and then for the New England Patriots. And his job in essence was to like hold Bible studies and provide <laughs> spiritual and emotional support for the players.
1: This is like a Dr. Ronnie Jackson narrative, (laughs) where like the guy, the guy who is like, oh, he's just like the White House doctor. He's just like some guy who's like, oh, and oh, he's in Congress now for some reason.
0: Yeah, (laughs) what? I mean, so like, it's it's it is it is crazy. Like, I know you don't know or care very much about football, but just to be clear to you and all our non-football loving uh, listeners out there running a bible studies program and overseeing <laughs> operations for a professional football team these are very very different things <laughs> okay. Be- being knowledgeable about football operations means being knowledgeable about like technology and logistics medical science, (laughs) security, (laughs) salary caps, like a whole rack of other things that have absolutely nothing to do with praying or like knowing how to give your athletes an emotional boost before the game. (laughs) Uh, So like, according to basically everyone online, including Sports Illustrated, who did a major story on this that we'll link to, Jack Easterby very obviously lacks the experience knowledge or ability to execute the functions of his current role effectively. What's more, the players are like deeply suspicious of him and he's perceived as a power hungry operative. Uh, uh, People have started to compare him to Peter Baelish uh, from Game of Thrones, Littlefinger. So like what, one quote from the SI article attributed to an unnamed colleague that captures the vibe well, I think, is, quote, if you combine a faith-healing televangelist with Littlefinger, you get Jack Easterby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. So uh, not only is be a chaplain, character coach, and an NFL operations executive, uh, you probably could have predicted this, Chad, but he – Also dabbles in stand-up comedy.
1: Oh, hell yeah. Did you, wait, did you Google, did you YouTube his stand-up comedy? We're we're going to
0: play. In order to truly appreciate who Easter B is and what he's all about, you need to hear some of his his stand-up. And I have some queued up for us here. (laughs) It's two minutes, but you have to listen to all of it. My two-minute clip that I've pulled out. This is essential listening. And so, you know, here we go.
2: I love crowds. I love crowds, right? Um, it's a blessing to travel all over the country, right? So on the West Coast, you go and crowds really tell you like the kind of people that are in that area. So on the West Coast, like you got to the West Coast for a game and you get there and people are in the parking lot and they're like, you know, got the surfboards on top of their, you know, on top of their Jeeps and they're sitting there and they're like, dude, like the game's at four. I'm just telling you if the game will be wrapped up around seven, like we can catch your way tonight. I'm just telling you, it's going to be totally awesome, dude. Like, I'm telling you, this is going to be awesome. I mean, we're just in the West Coast, man. It's just chill, you know what I'm saying? It's just everybody relax. Like, we're down 20, but it's all right, okay? Like, chill, bro. And then, like, you go... Down to the Midwest, right? Like you get, and you get into the like the Bobby's world, don't you know? Like you get into the, don't you know? Like don't you know we're playing Minnesota, like Minnesota here in the crowd. So everybody's chanting about Minnesota, don't you know? And I know we're down 15, but don't you know we're gonna come back, don't you know? <laughs> And then, like, you get down to Texas, right, and the belt buckles come out. I mean, they just all have the can help us, right? And I feel like to talk to somebody, I need to email their belt buckle and get permission. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, hey, man, how you doing? How, what, what is that? Like, that needs a headlight. You know what I'm saying? And so and we were just there, like, recently in Houston, and people put their thumbs back behind them. You know what I'm saying? And they talk to you, and they're like, hey. Everything's big in Texas and they give you that and they get the stomp and the little eels are going, right? But then you go up to New York, right? You go up to New York and I mean, you walk in the stadium and as soon as you walk in the stadium, what you looking at? What are you looking at? I'm I'm looking at the game. I mean, there's a game. What are you looking at? What's up kid? What you looking at, son? Not your kid, not your son. Just here for the game, bro. Like, chill out, man. It ain't that serious, right? And then where I'm at, like, in in Boston, right? Everybody says this phrase in the shoes. It's like, yo, we gotta go pop the car.
0: <laughs> like, we
2: gotta do what? What are you talking about? We gotta go pop the car.
1: That was the worst thing I have ever been through in my life. And that was <laughs> literal torture. That was a guy... That was a guy who like watched an old Richard Pryor tape, and was and was very entertained by the brothers be doing it like this and honky be <laughs> doing it like this, and thought that was the funniest shit that he'd ever seen, and was like, I need to be able to do that too, but I am a white guy, and so I can't. And it's
0: twenty. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's twenty twenty.
1: So how can I do this, but not, but not but do it in a way that's like less... somehow he and he still ended up being incredibly offensive, but like but you could tell what he was doing, right? Like he he was trying to just do that bit, but uh, but not do it in a way that would offend people.
0: Yeah, I mean it was a preamble to a sermon. He does like preaching things, and so he was in a church, but this is part of his stand up bit, and like. I think the thing to really focus on here is that this guy is one of the most powerful people in the (laughs) Texans organization. (laughs) And the team is in shambles. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. (laughs) <laughs> I, mean, like, I really think that like danny mcbride and his team yeah yeah should be working on a tv series inspired <laughs> by this guy
1: <laughs> like, it is it's it's Bounded down meets the righteous gemstones yeah
0: <laughs> yeah like you could really have a lot of fun with this
1: it's incredible and yeah and the i mean the 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 fact that he's an aspiring stand-up comedian it just like fully rounds out the character (laughs) it's amazing he's like
0: he's like at the highest level of the nfl but he's like you know man this just doesn't it's just not fulfilling for a guy like me to be like i just like logistics (laughs) oh man (laughs) so like i'm really guessing that it wouldn't surprise you after listening to this very high level stand-up routine <laughs> that uh that certain players on the texans have have voiced concern over the fact that Easter B has made some racially insensitive comments and huh. uh made use of inappropriate black stereotypes. I'm guessing that that probably would not <laughs> surprise you find that hard to believe <laughs> <laughs> do you <laughs> i mean like my my question is like in a league that's made up of seventy percent black players, why would you make this guy the character coach? Like the answer, very obviously, is because white owners who hire him don't care about structural racism. They don't think about it. They probably don't know what it is. There's no other explanation. So like even if Jack Easterby weren't as a aff- offensive as he very obviously is it would still be offensive to hire him for the roles that teams have hired him for let's set aside the fact that he appears to be totally ill equipped for his current role as operations executive he should never have been hired as team chaplain <laughs> you know, like, like the whole point of that job is to be relatable to players you can't convince me that he's the most qualified person for this job like it's just not the case, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know who you can convince of this, Chad? I, You know what? I
1: just, you know, oh my God, I just, this is a uh, completely off the wall, but I just learned a, a term today uh, that was coined by uh, the absolutely horrible human being, Scott Adams, uh, author of the Dilbert comic strip. Uh, it's called the Dilbert Management Principle. And the idea is that the the fuck ups in an organization keep getting promoted because people want to take them out of the workflow. So it's like everybody wants to get you promoted if you suck at your job because they want to they want you to stop messing things up for them. Maybe that's what happened. He was so bad at being chaplain, <laughs> they had to promote <laughs> yeah. him to, to running the organization.
0: I know that, that's that's kind of an interesting theory, but it's still <laughs> like at a certain point you need to be hired by someone at the very top, who's like, you know what, I believe in you, and that person for Jack Easterby was Cal McNair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and other people before him, but but Cal McNair loves, 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 loves Jack Easterby. Hmm. Apparently Bill Belichick also really loves Easterby. But so like I mean it won't take you very long if you go online to figure this out. Texas fans everywhere are up in arms, like livid. Their petitions on change.org trying to get Easterby fired. <laughs> <laughs> like the Texans organization is on fire. And, and they're losing like everything's a mess. All the players hate it there. And Cal McNair is like, Nope, this dude is awesome. <laughs> this dude." Cal
1: McNair
0: uh, sounds amazing. Yeah, I know. He's really good. Um, I have one, I, <laughs> I have one more thing I need to talk about in this segment. And that is, Presumably in an, in an effort to counteract some of the ling- lingering negative press from Bob McNair's inmate comment that I was discussing earlier, the, the Houston Texans launched a new in- initiative this past summer called, quote, Conversations for Change, a, a video series that, according to the Texans' website, is, quote, Aimed to continue the dialogue about racism and social injustice. So, all right. More specifically, what do these videos entail? <laughs> well, uh, these videos are <laughs> are essentially uh, uh, roundtable conversations where three the same three very white members of the McNair family, Janice McNair. Cal McNair and his wife, Hannah McNair all gather around one black person. (laughs) Tell me about
1: your experiences.
0: Yeah. To like listen and learn (laughs) from their experiences of being black in America.
1: That's so smart.
0: So like, like each, (laughs) each video features a different black person. Who appears to be on very friendly terms with the family, former players. (laughs) The mayor of Houston is featured in one. And in like all of these conversations, the McNair sit there and listen and occasionally chime in, acknowledging like hurt or work that needs to be done or how hopeful they are that they can make things better. Uh, you know, like go, go watch these videos or don't watch them. You get the idea. I don't need to go on about this because it's a pretty basic point. Okay. I, I just want to use like my little teeny tiny platform here to say, McNair family, like you do not get to be the good guys on this issue. You don't get to spend decades giving millions of dollars to Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell and Ted Cruz who have a long history of promoting like a white supremacist agenda and who are right now at this very moment key players in coordinating an effort to prevent black people from voting. Uh, you know, like you don't get to use the weight of your power and influence to f- promote fundamentally racist policies it, that that like probably in one way or another wind up enriching you and your billionaire family. Uh, and then And then somehow like, come around and say that you're champions of of social justice. You know, and like we've had many conversations along these lines before on the show, but it's kind of like the old Ray Dalio strategy we talked about way back when where he calls for taxes on the rich so that you seem reasonable so that people don't take a hard look at economic injustice for what it re- really is. I mean, like like you just take a step back for one fucking second. You have a league that's run Almost entirely by white people whose business is literally profiting on the labor of black bodies and often on their brain damage as well. And then they want to be like, look at us. This is what anti-racism is. We're we it. are the – you know, it's not okay. It's not okay. Speaking of the brain damage, and this is insane, and this will be the last thing I say in this in this segment. but. This is in the news recently. Have you heard about the concept of race norming and the, this lawsuit filed by black NFL players that's that's no. like currently making headlines? So real quick, when CTE the whole CTE thing broke wide open, there was a, a concussion settlement back in 2014. And as part of that, they established a, a legal process that you have to go through to prove that you've suffered uh, – if you're a player, to to prove that you've suffered a, a a cognitive deficit. So as part of the testing you have to go through, black players are presumed – I mean, this is just fucking unbelievable – to have lower cognitive functioning ability than white people. That's the baseline understanding of this test. No race norming. Which, which makes it more difficult – for black players to establish that they have reduced cognitive functioning as a result of football related head injuries, and so they've used this metric to deny payouts to black athletes and so there's a there's a lawsuit in the in the courts right now, a federal court just a couple of years ago uh, just a couple of weeks ago tossed it back to mediation I'm not exactly sure what the future of it is what going to look like. But I mean, if this is an example of structural racism, like, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's, it's unbelievably fucked up. So we have to rate the McNairs.
1: Okay. So you got the, you got the woman. So the, the matriarch, uh, is the person that we're rating, not Cal McNair.
0: We're rating the family. I pulled the, I pulled the woman. We thought it was just going to be one person, but it's the family. we're doing, we're doing Janice, Bob, and Cal, all as a package.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, like you know, Cal seems a little bit like a Hunter Biden figure to me, just like a fuck up, uh, fail son type of dude, right? Like,
0: I think that's not an unfair characterization,
1: but his parents seem very uh, straightforwardly and legitimately evil. Uh, I mean,
0: they're just straightforwardly and me- legitimately yeah as as however evil mitch mcconnell is they are that evil. (laughs) yeah
1: yeah, i guess so uh
0: you know i mean i i have to say seven
1: yeah i mean like that's exactly what i was thinking i
0: have to say seven right. So now we're at the very end of the show and we do what we have to do at the end of the show, which is pick our uh, billionaires for next episode. So Chad is the man who spins our roulette wheel.
1: Here we go. (laughs) The first billionaire is uh, number 378 on our list, solidly in the middle of the pack bruce karsh uh he is a private equity billionaire oh man this guy looks like uh he looks like uh like the picture that comes with a frame just a blank a debt investor i mean this is just all financial stuff
0: all right karsh financial private equity nonsense all right. all right. Okay. Spin it again.
1: I hope the next one's not interesting because we're going to fight over it. Uh, <laughs> all right. rolling again. Oh, no. It's pretty high. Number 95. This might be somebody we know Bernard Marcus. Oh. Yes, you know, you know, Bernard Marcus, he goes by Bernie Marcus, Home Depot, the guy who Uh, wrote the book that I believe the title of the book is I love capitalism. Uh, He is a psychopath. The
0: fact that I did Menard means that you have to get Home Depot. Doesn't that. uh, uh,
1: Yes. I'm so excited. I've been waiting for this guy, actually. I. I. He's one of my least favorite guys. Uh, m- it, one of the, It should be the you
0: have an. I think you'll, you're going to have an easier. You're going to have an easier exi- uh, assignment for next episode, but that's fine.
1: I think that's true. Uh, I Bruce Karsh <laughs> sounds. I'll take Karsh. Extremely boring. <laughs> I'm. Uh, so good luck to Joe on
0: that one. <laughs> oh my God. Let me just say to all of our listeners, thanks for bearing with us during this hiatus. And we're going to try to be more regular here in the next few months. Now that Chad is used to being a dad and we're kind of back on track in a certain way, you know, please like and subscribe I hate this, but you know, if you can reviews, great. Chad, do you have anything to say about any of that?
1: Uh, nope thank you everybody uh, we'll see you next time yeah, thanks for talking. tuning in as
0: always you guys are really great for, for, for being here for us and um, we'll try to be here for you uh, in, in another month or so
1: bye